Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. My name is Robin Harford and you'll find show notes over at eatweeds.co.uk. Today I interview Lucia Hagen from Wild Awake in Ireland and I brought her on because I'm very interested in her work that weaves the threads of foraging, rewilding and nature connection. So welcome Lucy. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) The journey, the journey from Northern Ireland, Belfast, tension, sectarianism. What's your journey into the wild? Well, I was born in Belfast in 1989. So... I lived through and remember the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. I remember very clearly standing on the corner of the street with a group of kids, you know, talking about this as kids do, interested in the politics of the world and how we were going to continue to be able to play outside if this was happening all around us. So our priorities were in line, maybe if the rest of the world weren't. So growing up in Belfast and then moving to a small town in County Down, which was also a a heavily sectarian town, you're always very acutely aware as a child and as a person growing up in Northern Ireland to what side you belong, (laughs) to what you need to say if somebody asks you for your name, depending on where you are. I suppose like what has brought me to where I am now is this hunger for a deeper belonging this hunger for a belonging that goes beyond religion or gender or sexuality um, or ability all of these ways in which we experience oppression in our lives and that's what has brought me to being out in nature and it was always the place that I went as a child to feel safe um, and to feel that sense of nourishment and that sense of belonging with things that were constant and yet always changing. So you, you seem to have done an awful lot. You did social anthropology and then you ended up on an island. Is that right? Somewhere? I went traveling for a long time and then went to university because that's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) I studied social anthropology because my sister had studied it and she would always come back and tell me the most incredible stories about people's different cosmologies and different ways of relating to the world. And it was just so fascinating to me to learn about all these different ways of being and experiencing the world. I studied French as well because I thought, well, I mean, if I don't get a job in social anthropology, at least I can be a translator. Obviously, that worked out perfectly. As part of the French, we had to do an Erasmus year. And while everybody else in my class was going to La Rochelle or Paris, I was like, okay, there are all these departments or these sort of ex-colonies of France. So I find myself on an island called La Réunion which is beside Madagascar. So I was there for eight months. And then when I finished university, I went and worked in Guadeloupe in the Caribbean. And that was my first kind of experience of 
environmental education. So in Reunion, I spend so much time connecting to the nature there. And it's such an incredible, incredible place with really wild nature. You're foraging mangoes and avocados is so exotic. I remember the first time I ate a pineapple, I cried because I realized that I'd been lied to all of my life about what a pineapple actually tasted <laughs> like. Such a, a special experience. Those experiences have shaped a lot of, of who I am now and that desire to live in a way that's connected to nature wherever I find it. Coming back to Ireland, to, to where you are now, it seems that one Europe an instructor on what I would call primitive technology. I don't really like that word. Non-industrial technology. Foraging. Which came first? Was it bushcraft and all that kind of survivally stuff that grabbed you or the, the weaving or whatever? Mm. What initially caught your attention? What pulled mm. you in? Mm -hmm. I suppose to start by saying the the words that I choose to use are ancestral skills and ancestral arts obviously primitive having such a pejorative um, connotation foraging felt like a bit of a constant I had the experience growing up where my mum would bring us out foraging blackberries or puffballs gardening and that connection to plants was there for a long time and as a young punk in Belfast homebrewing was always very high on the agenda and free food was very high on the agenda. So yes, it made sense at the time. And that was the aim. <laughs> it was as many liters of nettle beer as possible. And it wasn't until really that I did my forest school training in 2014 that I kind of came back to this place of nature being the place that I felt safest that I felt like this strong sense of belonging and that really like brought me to life as well as revealing to me the ways that I had hidden myself from myself I, I suppose I often think with nature connection it's not always this really awe-inspiring beautiful thing it can also be something that brings up a lot of grief and a lot of strong hard emotions for us as well did my forest school training and I was just so hungry for more after it it's an incredible training and the trainers that I work with as a trainer they were very much coming from the kind of eight shields methodology eight shields so the eight like shields developed um, in the states a person called John Young who's very much at the heart of that methodology and it's a way of working with the directions to not only design workshops, but also as a kind of cultural healing tool. And it's something that I would dip in and out of as a kind of approach to nature connection. I, I tend not to be very dogmatic in my approach. I draw from lots of different um, places in my facilitation. The, the training is a transformative training and it brings up a lot for people particularly around those feelings of disconnect and grief and where did we lose this knowledge along the way. So it was after doing that training that I found John Ryder in the Woodcraft School down in Sussex and I made the journey over there once a month for about two years. I learned really intensively from him about ethnobotany and bushcraft and 
wildlife tracking, which really transformed the way in which I view the world. And after studying with him for two years, I came across ancestral skills. I did this year long bushcraft instructors course because I didn't know what else was out there. And to me, this was all I knew at the time. And I sensed that it wasn't entirely for me. Bushcraft can be such a male-dominated, quite military style of domination over nature. Can be, like definitely not everybody in that community approaches it in that way. For me, it didn't always sit right with me. Then I met my teacher, Lynx Vilden, and from there started these epic journeys with her of living outside. We lived in a cave in France for a month and journeyed around the ancient area of the Dardogne and we lived up in the area of the Sami and Sapmi in northern Sweden for three months in the forest there and that was all about learning ancestral skills so yes foraging and foraging for our food and preserving and drying our food for longer journeys and also hide tanning, clothes making and tool making, using plants for fiber and for dyes and really like bringing together all of the threads that I'd already been exploring in a practical sense. We were going out on journeys and taking these things with us and eating wild food and also on a deeper community level. How do we live together for one month, for three months? How do we tend to our griefs collectively? How do we share our joy and play together? It was a terrible experience and it's the the way that I love to live my life, I wish I could do more of, but that I'm trying to facilitate now for people here in Ireland. I've got an impression that somehow you work a lot with young people, children, mm-hmm. or are you broad spectrum? Are you intergenerational teacher? Yeah, I'm much more broad spectrum now. When I began, I was predominantly working with children through the forest school. And now I have an amazing team of people that are running the forest school and doing incredible work there with the young people. And my focus is lying with the rites of passage development in Ireland for teenagers and then also these immersive programs and weekends and weeks for adults. To passage, I'm curious partly because I have a bit of resistance and and issues around cultural appropriation. I'm really quite hardcore on it, actually. So I know that you're also very conscious of that. Mm -hmm. When you say rites of passage, take us through what, one, what is a rite rite of passage? Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of one of those phrases that we kind of know, but do we really know? So I'd, I'd want to know how you define it from your point of view. And also, what is the, the process mm-hmm. and purpose? What's the, the reason to do a rite mm-hmm. of passage? Mm-hmm. Firstly, thank you for your concern about cultural appropriation. I think it's a really serious issue and something that I'm always very mindful of in my work, or at least try to be in the ways that I can see. So rites of passage, essentially at its essence, it's like marking the transitions in our lives. That could be the transition from birth, the transition from childhood into young adulthood, these coming of age ceremonies. 
anything could be a, a rite of passage, like giving birth and um, choosing to commit to a person to enter into elderhood. It's a way of intentionally marking these transitions in our lives. And it feels very potent to talk about this at this time of year, like Samhain, um, this festival of what is the Celtic New Year is happening tomorrow. And it's an intense time of shedding and of letting go and of death of things that no longer serve us. And I suppose rites of passage is that letting go of a way of life that has, is no longer serving us, saying thank you to that and entering into a new phase of our life. And I suppose the important thing at the core of rites of passage, which it's so hard for us to happen in this day and age, but is that witnessing by your community or by your family or by your peers that you have stepped into this new way of life. And that's what's so often missing because we, we don't have that anymore. We might not have that community or if I'm working with a young person when they've had a kind of transformative experience and then they go back into school and it's like nothing's changed. So that's something that I'm really interested in with this work is how that ripples out through the community. And in terms of rites of passage and cultural appropriation, I think it's really important to remember that rites of passage are our birthright and that there are many pan-cultural ways that rites of passage show up. And there were rites of passage in Ireland. There are caves here that are, are believed that people went in for a kind of rites of passage or vision fast. I think the important thing with it, and certainly what I'm trying to do in the development of rites of passage here in Ireland, is looking to what rituals already exist. We have a huge record of folklore here, and we're so lucky to have so much access to this, and finding the things that are culturally significant to the people here, and trying to revive that as a process of decolonization in Ireland. There are lots of different ways to approach a rites of passage. The classic kind of framework of it is that there's a moment of or a time of severance, of severing ourselves from the life that we once knew, a period of liminal time in the middle where people go through and have these transformative experiences, and then the return. So the coming back to the community and being witnessed in those changes. Rites of passage are not something that most of us experience. And actually, we see the hunger for rites of passage in young people in the ways in which they try to initiate themselves. And certainly for me as a young person, the ways in which I tried to initiate myself through drink or drugs or self-harm. It's like when we are not witnessed in these changes by our wider community or society, we try to grow ourselves up in whatever unhealthy cultural ways that we've internalized. So there's a quote by Michael Mead, I believe it is, that the young people are not initiated into the village, they'll burn the village down. So it's working with this fiery time of adolescence that's so potent. And our society is so fearful of adolescence because they see and they feel this fire in them. And rather than directing that fire towards the very real problems that we're facing in the world, redirecting that fire of what do we do about climate change? What do we do about all these issues of polarization in our societies? They are 
shunned. They're told that they're just moody, grumpy teenagers and we don't want to listen to them when actually they have so much to offer the world. It's a powerful, powerful process and it's such huge work. It's work that's called me for a long time and working with young people and seeing how, especially through forest school, they were having these really incredible, like intimate moments with each other and with nature. And then basically, as soon as they got to 12, I would lose them and they would go to secondary school and either they don't have time or it's not cool anymore or they have lots of other things to worry about. Um, so it's like, okay, well, what is missing here? Um, which is what brought me to, to Rites of Passage. And I did my own very intentional Rites of Passage last year, um, which was a classic <laughs> five-day vision fast. So five days without um, food in a wild place and sitting with my intention and what it was that I was stepping into. And, and for me, it was very intentionally stepping into providing rites of passage whilst also weaving in these ancestral skills. We're teaching young people how to forage, how to weave baskets, how to track animals, how to light fires and providing them with the skill set of these are these tools in nature where it's so hard to deny your belonging to something much bigger than yourself. And then also combining those ancestral skills with the kind of interpersonal skills of conflict navigation or understanding their life's journey. So many things, gender, sexuality, boundaries, consent, all of these things that help us to help them navigate being a young person today. Because I don't know what that's like, really. It was hard enough in the early 2000s. It feels like there's such a huge diversity of issues that they're facing. Um, Following on from that and this concept of rewilding, again, it's a word that's put out there that is used, but it also seems that there's a different understanding of what that word means. So in the context of your work, in the context of transition rites of passage whether that's young people or middle-aged people or elder people how do you see rewilding mm. and how would you define it it's a word that's used from everything to sell shoes to vast landscapes for me it's about healing it's about healing ourselves and healing our cultures and, and healing nature and recognizing ourselves as a part of that and knowing that when we're healing ourselves, we're also healing culture and we're also healing the earth. It's about living a life in service. So service to the younger generations and to the future generations, preserving wildness in whatever form that takes and it's such a word that's loaded with so many different images and connotations for people the need to preserve that wildness obviously in the world around us and that diversity and also in ourselves and in our cultures and particularly now also recognizing the importance of diversity in our cultures and in our societies and our communities, which is what develops resilience. A rewilding, often decolonizing 
Mm-hmm. How do you define decolonizing? I suppose when I, I think about it in the context of Ireland and, and actually all around the world, my ancestors have both been colonized and been colonizers and, and all of our ancestors have not to put things into binaries, the ability to both oppress and to be oppressed. For me, I suppose what I witness and what I learn about here is the process of colonization was in cutting people off from the roots, from the land, from their traditional ways of life, from their language, and bringing in this homogenization of culture, uh, a culture of binaries, a culture of oppressions in so many ways, of racism, of white supremacy, and Rewilding for me is so much the process of challenging these narratives within ourselves, being aware of our privileges and of the oppressions that we face simultaneously and working to make ourselves aware of and develop empathy for other people that are experiencing more oppression than ourselves and how we can use our privileges to lift those people up as well because it's about developing resilience in our communities and actually like to bring it back to wildlife tracking that's taught me so much about this tracking is one of our oldest skills and people talk about it as in like it it helped our brain to develop into what it is now that we are able to draw a link between this track on the ground and a certain individual animal it's 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 such an amazing process but for me whenever you come across a track or a sign we practice this thing called holding the question So not jumping to a conclusion of what you see um, and of taking time to slow down and to gather evidence and to listen to other people's um, perspectives and to develop empathy with a being whose life you can't really understand, but that you can begin to develop empathy for. It just teaches me so much in those lessons. It's such a powerful process. I think all of these ancestral skills and particularly foraging as well can teach us so much about what it is to be human, to feel looked after in the world and to feel like a sense of belonging to the place that we find ourselves in. We might necessarily have a long line of ancestors who come from that place or even any line of ancestors that come from that place. But it's like when we just begin to get to know the birds outside our window or where our water comes from or what plants we find at our front door. It's like this feeling of home making that is undeniably there (laughs) and that we can connect with on a really intimate level. You mentioned home just then and for me it threw up the word community. And that often in this very distracted, destructive culture, that community is just not around. And Mm. even more so with the lockdowns that happen. And someone 
once flipped the word of community because normally when I was thinking community, I was thinking human. Mm. And yet community now to me is far more expanded to include not just human, mm. the non-human world as well. I find with foraging that a lot of the time I'm sitting, foraging, sitting, foraging, sitting, observing, feeling into that landscape. And that actually that by default, if we can get into that zone, what I suppose the psychologists call flow, where there's a dissolving of self, not in a complete kind of like taking a load of acid and just dissolving. <laughs> there's a loosening of that boundary. It's more fluid mm. and subtle. And from that comes the acknowledgement by default of things like diversity. Mm. And then that comes up with like invasive plants, because I know some rewilding communities, they don't want any invasive plants, so-called invasive plants, mm. guest plants. <laughs> <laughs> Someone uh, dis decided to use that word, which I think is a really nice word, because whoever finds themselves on a plot of land, if they're not originally from there, are a guest, mm. not an invader. Yeah, well, they were brought here. <laughs> <laughs> they were either brought here or they made their way here. Yeah. <laughs> so as metaphor, foraging encompasses everything from certainly from my understanding that you've been discussing. So I want to pick back up on your time in France when you were with the group of people doing a rewilding exploration my personal thing with food at foraging is i'm always trying to get back to pre-industrial processes mm. ancestral processes and i'm also really curious about hunter gatherers mm -hmm. so i go very binary with this most probably just to make the point there are nomadic hunter gatherers and there are static tribal hunter-gatherers and so nomadic being bands mm. static tends to be tribe and by default hierarchical whereas band culture from my studies and having visited nomads mm. is not hierarchical certainly not the group of people that i hung out with it mm. was very egalitarian and so these food processes that you explored, because obviously wanderers can't have a fridge with them. They don't have stills. They don't have dehydrators. They don't have canning. They don't have a cooker. <laughs> so I'm interested, if you weren't living on 100% just wild meats, mm -hmm. when it came to the plants, how were you working with them? How were you? preserving them were you just mm -hmm. working in the moment on a daily basis mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how you mm -hmm. work that relationship I was up in Finland for a week in February that was a week-long Stone Age project so we'd been working up to that for a very long time and I think 
especially with the plants and the food side of it, it was a realization of the importance of through the year, preserving through drying things to have food for the winter time. It was minus 20. We were around the fire most evenings. We had a huge clay pot that we were cooking on the fire with. We were in clothes that we'd tanned ourselves and we were living in a Stone Age centre. It was a replica, like birch bark shelter. And for that time, it was seaweeds that I'd harvested and dried. It was acorn and sweet chestnut flowers that I'd processed. It was a reindeer that was killed there. It was dried meat from other times. It was rendered fat from other times, stored in clay pots. It was just like this understanding of the work that goes into being able to feed just 12 people and a two-year-old who probably ate more than all of us combined. The work that goes into preserving food for the colder months and for our ancestors really feeling that that would have been something that happened continuously throughout the year um, and particularly taking advantage of the huge dehydrator that is the sun in the warmer months and in France and Sweden do you know like we would have we would have fished mostly we did kill a couple of animals and process the meat and dried the meat into jerky and made pemmican for longer journeys as well. Pemmican is a Native American recipe. I'm not sure from which group in particular, but it's a mixture of pounded dried meat mixed with fat and mixed with dried berries or herbs. It's supposed to be like a whole food. It's like a human bird ball, essentially. Yeah. A really good thing to bring on long hikes or trips. Um, because you're getting a lot of what you need in different seasons it was very different like in in France in May we were supplementing a lot of food with the greens and the flowers and some of the roots at that time and then up in Sweden you could barely walk two steps without squashing about 20 bilberries so bilberries featured very heavily as well as all of the fish that we were fishing every day as well so there were times we were eating completely wild meals and times when that needed to be supplemented because we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. It might be in our bones and it might feel familiar, but our lifestyle's not conducive to that way of life. And it takes a lot of work and yeah. it can only be done in a community of people. That is my biggest takeaway from all of those experiences it's not the skills it's about each other and people and, and how we need each other to live we don't have fur or sharp teeth or claws we just have each other and our ingenuity and our creativity what would be your advice for someone who's curious what would be your advice to to deepen their personal relationship with wildness community mm -hmm. foraging mm -hmm. medicines mm -hmm. i think you've already said it is is being curious is key to all of that and asking questions and a willingness to be wrong um, within obviously safe parameters as much as you're able getting to know what is just within the surroundings of your home 
So getting to know the plants that are at your door or in your local park, if you're able to going on a walk with a forager to learn more, buying like a book to help you or many books if you're able as well. But having that, um, do you know, there's an amazing eco-philosopher called John Moriarty. I don't know if you've ever come across his work and, and he talks about silver branch perception. So this childlike wonder and curiosity about the world and being able to experience it as if for the first time. I think just trying to cultivate that as much as possible in ourselves, which kind of happens anyway when you start to learn about nature and the different relationships and oh my god I didn't realize that nettle had so many benefits or I had no idea that my water came from this place it's like approaching the world with that kind of curiosity and wonder I think is key to any beginnings of this and feels very accessible to lots of people and means that people can find the route into this that is right for them and where they find themselves at right now. It is a strange journey. My lineage, I suppose, is what I, I term and others term the green path. I had a friend recently who I'd met in India just over a year ago and realised that we lived in the same town. And she just off the cuff said, because she's retired now, she was a midwife and she's retired and her partner's retired. And she just said, oh, I've always had a bit of a thing about mushrooms. I love, because she loves cooking. It's like, I love mushrooms. Can you take us mushrooming? And I went, well, mm. no, I'm not going to take you mushrooming because I'm a plant-based ethnobotanical researcher. Mushrooms is another kingdom. So <laughs> um, I know a few, but I don't know them solid enough to teach. So mm -hmm. I phoned up a friend slash colleague who lives 10 miles away and I said do you want to take my mates out so we all went out and from that moment just spending a couple of hours in the woods my friend has just gone off on this journey like a rocket <laughs> she's got the books she's out she's continually scanning landscape and all from what's and has developed a massive passion wants to know everything i gave them an eyeglass a loop botanical loop which if anyone's listening get a botanical loop <laughs> if you want to blow your synapses your brain get a loop and then you so will maybe understand yeah yeah mind-bending nature is and infinite in the infinitesimal tininess of it do you remember the first time you saw a hazel flower? The little red. Yeah. I haven't looked at it through a loop. Oh, it's like that. <laughs> that was one of those moments for me. It was just like, it's all here. Like it was underneath my nose and I didn't see it. I found that with bilberry flower. It took me into another state totally. Yeah. Because it yeah. was the, the architecture. But. I did actually, I did a retreat in Ireland. I'm not sure when, I think it might have been 2016. And I did it over on the Burren. Mm -hmm. And I gave everybody a loop. Now, I haven't done many of these retreats. I think I might be doing more <laughs> over the years. 
And I gave everyone a loop and I said, you're going to walk the forest floor. You get down on your hands and knees and all your bums are sticking up in the air and you're, you're looking just with the loop and you're not allowed to take it away. You've got to explore the forest floor through it. That just, I mean, it was, it was almost spooky. The, the ambience of the group, the dynamic of the group completely shifted and they had just fallen in love, like falling down the rabbit hole. It was extraordinary. So loops mm-hmm. and that paying attention to the to the tiny. Because so often we get we get hooked into vast landscapes. I'm going to the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great. But walk out your front door and pick up a leaf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'll find a you you can have a Himalayan experience right here. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. have to go somewhere else. You find the sacred in the everyday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. There's nothing complex about this. It can be. It can be as much as when you go out for your daily walk, just choose to focus on the sound of the wind in the leaves. Mm. Put your phone away, preferably don't even take it with you and just start playing with the environment that you find yourself mm. through your senses. Mm-hmm. And obviously foraging is, is eating. So we take that wildness and that experience into our body, which is very powerful. Yeah. So before we wrap and pack, have you got anything you want to finish off with before we get into where people can find you? I, I would love to just tell people about this zine that I've produced. I don't know if you received it I yet, did you? I haven't received it yet, no. Oh, okay, it's in the post. It's a, a zine called Aramid's Journal. So Aramid in our mythology was kind of our first herbalist. She was the daughter of one of the Tuastadanin, um, which were like this ancient race of gods and goddesses. The story goes that her father killed her brother because he was not a very nice person. And uh, where her brother uh, was buried, um, where she buried him, 365 herbs sprung up from his body and Aramid started to cut and to sort these herbs according to where they were found on his body. And when she did this and her father Nuada, who was very confronted by the power and the knowledge of his children, he took the plants and scattered them all across Ireland. And it's said that Eremid is still searching for, is why we're always still searching for the plants and, and trying to assign them to their healing, their healing powers. And it's said that Eremid shared this knowledge first with the Irish travellers and that they continue to share the intent to that ancient and indigenous knowledge of Ireland. Um, so Aramid's Journal is a zine that I've co-produced with my good friend, Sean Fitzgerald, who's done all these incredible um, illustrations. And it's bringing together stories and myths and folklore and cures of the plants of Ireland and really trying to represent the intersectional voices as well in Ireland and further afield so the first issue of that is released and that's available on my website with full intention to begin the second issue after Samhain and uh, over winter months. Um, Is this an ongoing project? We we hope so the first issue has been so well received I didn't expect to turn into a post office quite so quickly it was a dream of mine for a very very long time and 
now that it's out there and I can see how hungry people are for something like this, we really want to continue it. We're also reaching out to people who would like to contribute to get in touch with us at aramidsjournal at gmail.com. Do you want to spell that for people? A-I-R-M-I-D-S journal. So people can find you at wildawake.ie, is that right? Well, they can find something about me yeah, there. A, a digital <laughs> representation. Very I'm not actually there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really have full intentions of updating that website more frequently, but they can also find me on Instagram at wildawakeireland too. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Great Robin. to have you on. Wanted you on yeah. for a long time. <laughs> and everybody, check out Lucia Hagen's work. Thank you. Thank you.